I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I mentioned that it has been a little bit since I've been up here in the pulpit, but I'm sure all of you remember that the last time I was here, we were in Ephesians chapter 2, and we looked at the first three verses of one of the, really what is considered to be many people's favorite chapters in the Bible, and for good reason. And so as I was thinking about, as I had one shot opportunity again to preach on this evening, what do I preach about? Well, we did chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 last time, and then I went and checked, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 were still there, and much to my relief, they hadn't changed. So I figured, let's go back to this tonight. I had the thought that maybe I should ask Aileen to put a homework assignment in the bulletin this evening of everybody has to go back and listen to the message from six months ago on Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, but I didn't think that would fly. I thought better of it. So I decided what we can do here for just a couple of minutes before we get into the text for tonight is just to do a brief review over the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So if you are there... And I am there now. Let's go ahead and read that passage. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of of mankind. As we mentioned before, this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, many people would point you to it and say, that is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. I mean, I love the entire Word of God. I love the entire counsel of the Word. But this is my absolute favorite. And for good reason. But as we get into chapter 2, especially as we start to kind of rehash what we saw in verses 1 through 3, we have to remember... Paul is stating these things, these great truths of chapter 2, for a reason. The end goal of Ephesians chapter 2 is actually stated back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 18, or 17 and 18. When Paul writes, says, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Right here, encapsulated in these two verses, we have Paul's stated goal for all the teaching that he goes on to expound in the rest of the book of the Ephesians. He states that the end result for us, as we get into chapter 2, and we understand the great truths that are contained in chapter 2, the end goal would be our wisdom, our growth in our knowledge of God, and the knowledge of the hope to which He has called us as His people. The ultimate goal of the great truth of Ephesians chapter 2 is our own spiritual growth, our health, and our walk with Jesus Christ. And so to that end... Paul transitions into chapter 2, as we just read in verses 1 through 3, and he reminds the Ephesian church, and likewise us to follow, of exactly who they were. This is who you used to be. In order to have a deeper walk with Jesus, 
and a life that is more pleasing to the Lord, let me remind you of who you used to be before Christ. And he reminds them that they were four things. Verse 1, he tells them they were dead in their trespasses and sins. There was no spiritual life. They were unable to comprehend the things of God and they did not even desire to do so. In verse 2, he reminds them that they were followers of the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan himself. You were disciples of Satan. You were followers of this world. You were enslaved to the system of this world. You were earthly. You were not spiritual. Verse 3 tells them, reminds them that they were slaves to the desires of their bodies and minds. The flesh was your ruler. Whatever the flesh wanted you to do, you could do nothing else but obey it. You were a slave. And then fourthly, again in verse 3, he reminds them that all of this resulted in them being children of wrath. You were not children of God. You were children of wrath. You were the objects of God's wrath. You stood in danger of judgment. At any moment, God could have chosen to take you out of this world and condemn you to a Christless eternity in hell. Those are hard verses to hear. It's not fun truth, but it is truth. But then we come to our passage tonight. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Let's go ahead and read those. It begins in verse 4, But God. Here's who you were, but God. Now, countless volumes have been written. Immeasurable ink has been spilled on these two short words. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. This is who you were, but God. I love the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. He said, these two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. As we look to understand the depth of the truth in verses 4 through 7 tonight, we're going to use three key questions to understand this passage. Verse 4 starts out, but God, the first question that we're going to answer is, who is this God? Who is this God? The second question that we need to answer is, what has God done? And the third question we will answer is, why has God done this? But let's look at verse 4 as we get into the passage. This God of but God Who is he? Verse 4 says again, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. There are two character attributes of God that are highlighted here in verse 4. The first being that God, this God, is merciful. God is merciful. And in his mercy, he withholds the judgment from the children of wrath that they rightly deserve, and he places it, instead of on them, 
on His only Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, reminds us that He, talking about God the Father, made Him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we, in turn, might be the righteousness of God in Him. This is mercy. This is the mercy of God the Father. The but God, who is not content to leave the children of wrath in their sinful condition, who is not content to just let them go their own way to judgment, but in His mercy, He provides a way to escape that judgment. One of the passages that I was reminded of in the Old Testament regarding the mercy of God, one of my favorite passages is in Psalm 78. I'm going to turn there and read that for us real quick. Psalm 78, and I'm going to read verses 36 through 39. And this is talking specifically about God's dealings with His people Israel in the Old Testament. But it's a wonderful example of His mercy. Verse 36 of Psalm 78 says, But they, the nation of Israel, flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, he atoned for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. This God of the Old Testament, who was so merciful in dealing with his Old Testament people Israel, is the same God of Ephesians chapter 2. Even though he has every reason, every righteous reason in his holiness to judge the children of wrath without question, in his mercy, he provides a way of escape in the cross of his son Jesus Christ. But not only is this but God merciful, He's also loving. Because verse 4 again says, This God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. God is not an onlooker in the plan of salvation. He's not an angry deity waiting to be appeased. He is rather the primary actor. He is the planner and He is the initiator. Of his people's salvation. The one who because of his great love. Finds a way to deal with his own wrath. In a way that does not compromise his wrath. Nor his holiness. But shows mercy to his people. This God is merciful. And this God is loving. And this causes him to act out. In mercy and in love. To bring salvation to those who were spiritually dead, who were followers of the course of this world, who were slaves to Satan and his world system, who were the children of wrath. John MacArthur in his Ephesians commentary puts it like this, and it's an extended quote, but I wanted to read it to you tonight. He says, Though greatly offended and sinned against, as depicted in the parable of Matthew 18, 23-35, parable of the prodigal son, Because of God's rich mercy and His great love, He offered forgiveness and reconciliation to us as He does to every repentant sinner. 
Though in their sin and rebellion all men participated in the wickedness of Jesus' crucifixion, God's mercy and love provide a way for them to participate in the righteousness of His crucifixion. I know what you are and what you have done, He says. But because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my Son on your behalf. For His sake, I offer you forgiveness. To come to me, you need only to come to Him. Not only did He love enough to forgive, but also enough to die for the very ones who had offended Him. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Compassionate love for those who did not deserve it makes salvation possible. And this is the glory of salvation. The showcase of the great mercy and love of God who would not let His sinful creation who rebelled against Him go on to their own destruction, but instead made a way of salvation. Understand that God's mercy and love, especially here in verse 4 of chapter 2, are revelations of His character. God is not merciful because He does merciful things. He's not loving because He does merciful things. Rather, He does or shows mercy because mercy is His very character. He loves... Because love is, is who He is. It is His character. And He can do nothing other than but act in His character. So this God of the but God is a merciful God. He is a loving God who calls sinners to repentance. And says, I am angry with your sin But there is a way of escape at great cost to myself, at the expense of the life of my only son. I offer you mercy and I love you and I offer you forgiveness. If you will turn from your sins and repent and trust in him and his work alone for salvation. So that is who God is. Our second question as we move on is what has God done? And we see the answer to this in verses 5 and 6. And we'll read them again. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What has God done? Well, simply, in verses 5 through 6, He has first made us alive together with Christ. Note the continued repetition of with Christ and in Christ all throughout this passage. It says, while we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive. He has given life to the spiritually dead. We were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. And He raised us up with Him. This is Paul pointing back to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And saying what is true of Christ physically is true right now of you spiritually. And just as Christ's resurrection in the Gospels was an indication of the Father's acceptance of His sacrifice, so too when Scripture now speaks of believers being with Christ in resurrection, it's an indication of the acceptance of His sacrifice on their behalf. 
Just as the Father accepted Christ, His Son Jesus, and raised Him from the dead, so He has accepted you as those who are now in Christ because of faith, and He has now raised you from the dead as well. William Henderson, in his Ephesians commentary, he writes this regarding these verses. He says, The new life has already begun. Even now our life is hid with Christ in God. Our names are inscribed in heaven's register. Our interests are being promoted there. We are being governed by heavenly standards and motivated by heavenly impulses. The blessings of heaven constantly descend upon us. Heaven's grace fills our hearts. Its power enables us to be more than conquerors. And to heaven our thoughts aspire and our prayers ascend. Everything that God did for His Son Jesus in accepting Him and accepting His sacrifice, in raising Him physically from the dead, He has now done for His people who are in Christ. In salvation, just as He did with His only Son when He raised Him from the dead on the third day, He created life in the midst of death. In the same way that He called Jesus forth from the grave, he called believers, those who now are now in Christ, who were spiritually dead, granted them life and called them, called us out of our spiritual graves. But not only has He raised us from the dead, the second thing that we see is that He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. As those who have been raised with Christ to new spiritual life, we are now no longer of this present world. We're no longer slaves like we were in verses 1 through 3 to its sphere of sinfulness. We are now, first of all, citizens of heaven. Although we don't reside there physically just yet. When Paul talks about we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that's simply a reference to the supernatural sphere in which God rules. And the language here, the original language, indicates an action, think that's significant, that has already taken place. This is your present condition. This isn't something, although we look forward to the return of Christ and being with Him forever in glory, that's not what this passage is pointing to. The passage here, the language here, points to our present condition. Even now, as we are here, living our physical lives... On this earth, we are seated with Christ positionally in the heavenly places. This is our position of privilege and blessing right now. What Paul wrote of Jesus back in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, which I'm going to read right now, verse 19 of chapter 1, says God is showing the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Same language as here in chapter 2. What is true of Christ then is true of us right now. We are joined with Christ so that we are positionally where He is physically right now. It's positional now and it will be physical in the future. And this, and we'll double back around to this here in a few minutes, 
This isn't just meant to be a nice ethereal thought. There's a practical aspect of it. That as believers, even while we are here on earth, yet we are positionally with Christ in the heavenly places, by the mercy and love of God our Father, this motivates us to live spiritual lives when we remember this positional reality. We remember that this one day will be our actual physical reality. And we look forward to that. We're reminded that we are heavenly, that we are bound for glory, and when Christ returns, we'll be with Him for eternity, and this ought to motivate and inform our lives and our actions presently as we look forward to this. So this God, chapter 2, verse 4, is a God of mercy. He's a God of love who has made a way of salvation. And in that, what has He done? He has raised us up with Christ, created life where there was only spiritual death. He has seated us with Christ, taken His enemies and given them a position of privilege when He made them His children and His friends with His Son, Jesus Christ. But the third key question tonight is, why has God done this? And we look at verse 7 for the answer. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why has God done this? Because salvation for God's glory is by the motivation and His power of His great love. The plan of salvation, God designed it from beginning to end, ultimately for His glory and for the good of His people. God has saved us ultimately for the purpose of demonstrating His incredible love, His grace, His kindness, His power in turning spiritually dead human beings into sons and daughters that reflect His likeness, that reflect His image perfectly just in the way that they were created to do. Now this is not petty selfishness on God's part. Again, this is not in the way that we might imagine a human being doing something for our own glory. Because God alone is worthy of this glory. And His glory and the good of His people always go hand in hand. Remember the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, God works all things together for the good of those that love Him. To those who are called according to His purpose. Talking about their eventual salvation and the redemption That awaits them. It's all for the glory of God. And if we are to truly enjoy God. And to find the satisfaction that he created us for. He must glorify himself. The cross of Christ. Being the ultimate example. Of God's glory. So going back to verse 4. But God, who is this God? He is merciful. He is loving. What has He done? He has taken those who were spiritually dead, who were children of wrath. He has given them life. He has raised them up and seated them with His Son in the heavenly places right now. And in the future, that will be their physical reality. 
Why has he done this? For his own glory. To show his greatness and to show his love and to shower that love and affection and glory on his creation. And by showing his glory to give them the ultimate satisfaction that they were created to know and to enjoy. So what does this mean for us? First of all, as we step back and we think about the greatness of this passage. Okay, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Understand, first of all, that this passage, this knowledge of God, the great truths that we have seen starting in verse 1, 1, 2, 3, and then the response of God in verses 4 through 7, it should, first of all, lead us to repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And we spoke earlier of the kindness of God. In Romans chapter 2 verse 4, again when Paul is writing, he says, Do you not understand that the kindness or God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We as sinful human beings ought to look at the kindness of God and it ought to motivate us to repent. When God says, the way to know me and to know my love is to turn from your sins and trust in the work of my only Son for salvation. How could that not cause us to want to know this God? And so first of all, for anyone who is here tonight or hearing my voice, understand that if you have not trusted Christ, you are still a child of wrath. You are the object of God's wrath. Either you will pay for your sins against a holy God, or you can trust Christ for salvation. This but God of verse 4 was not content to leave you in your sinful state in danger of His wrath. The gospel is about love and mercy and Everyone who repents and trusts in Christ alone for salvation will receive His mercy and forgiveness. We stand in the pulpit and we talk about the wrath of God and judgment for sin. But that is only for those who will not listen to the invitation to salvation. To anyone who will turn from their sin and trust Christ, you will know nothing but mercy and forgiveness and love. And that's what we invite you to tonight. To trust Christ. To those who are in Christ, then, this knowledge of God should lead us, first of all, to worship. Another great New Testament passage, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, when Paul is talking about really in-depth things, about God's plan of salvation, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11. He comes to the end of Romans chapter 11. And he just explodes in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. That includes the plan of salvation from beginning to end. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 
And so just like Paul in Romans chapter 11, these great truths, when we realize who we were and everything that God has done in love and mercy to bring us to himself at great cost to himself, it ought to motivate us and lead us to worship But that worship is not just what takes place here on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings in the church sanctuary, right? Hey, that's corporate worship, but worship has other forms. Worship can also take the form of action in our lives. So this knowledge of God should lead us to worship, but it should also be worked out in our lives. The last passage that I want to look at tonight is from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. What I want to point us to, first of all, in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3, is that Paul uses very similar language to what he's using in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice what he says. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Again, we see raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you are raised with Christ, like we see in Ephesians chapter 2, you're seated with him in the heavenly places. Then he says in in verse 2 of chapter 3, set your minds then on things that are above. If this is your present reality that you're seated with Christ, then set your mind there. Get your mind off of this world and what it has to offer, and focus on eternity. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You will be physically with Him one day. So if we believe that this is true, and we worship the God who has made all of this true, The point here that we see, especially in Colossians chapter 3, is that this ought to make a difference in the way that you live your life. In the way that you relate to those around you. In the way that you go about your job. In the choices that you make day to day. In your priorities. This makes a difference now. So what does it look like to seek the things that are above? It means that our priorities and our focus are now on eternity rather than only this temporary physical life that will soon come to an end. These new priorities, this new focus, reflects itself in a changed life that is now governed by the Spirit rather than being a slave to the flesh, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And Paul goes on, In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5 all the way through verse 17, we're not going to read the whole thing tonight, but then he elaborates specifically on what this new life that is seated with Christ looks like. He says in verse 5, for example, put to death what is earthly in you. And then he lists several things that are earthly. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Says the life that is focused on eternity that has been raised with Christ is absent of these things. These things don't characterize 
that life. Another example, verse 9, don't lie to one another. Verse 12 then, he says, not just about the things that don't characterize you anymore, but it's about who you are now. Put on then, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And he goes on and expounds on that all the way through verse 17. The point being that those who are raised with Christ look like it and act like it while they are here on earth, before they are with Christ physically. Now they don't do that perfectly. There are setbacks. There are times when they stumble. There are times when they fall. There are times maybe where they live in darkness for a time. But they belong to Christ. And ultimately the general direction and pattern of their life is to reflect the spirit that now lives within them. And so a knowledge of what God has done, like we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, will lead to a changed focus in life that will in turn lead to a changed life. New actions. The putting off of the old and the putting on for the new. So I would encourage you, as we close our time tonight, again, I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Wonderful verses. Again, that God was not content to leave us in this sinful condition. It is my prayer as we close that God would allow these truths, though, to penetrate our hearts first for anyone that does not know Him, that they would motivate, they would be motivated, they would be drawn to trust Christ in repentance and trust Him alone for salvation. And then for those who do know Christ, that we would be motivated to take these truths, to understand them, to meditate on them, to chew on them, and allow them to work themselves out in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to You for Your Word, for the teaching of Your Word. Father, and we're so thankful that You did not leave us at the end of verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy that sent your Son to die for our sins so that all who trust in Christ could be forgiven. And I pray, Father, for those who don't know him, Father, for our friends, for our relatives, for our co-workers who don't know Jesus, for anyone who is here tonight who doesn't know him. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would give them repentant hearts, that they would trust Christ for salvation and turn to you for your mercy. And Father, I pray for the saints here, Lord, that these truths would not just fall on our ears to be forgotten, Father, but that we would remember them, that you would use them and implant them in our hearts in such a way that it causes us to change and to live lives of holiness that are pleasing to you and honoring to your Son. Pray, Father, that you would be with us as we go out this week in our separate walks. Father, help us to be faithful witnesses to the truth. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to love you and to love those around us as we ought to. Father, we love you and we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.